Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. In our continuing series, Jesus at the Center of the Church, today's message is dedicated to the theme of urgency. This part draws attention to the church in Sardis that, as per historical records, was lulled into complacency by their contemporary culture. The story unfolds as Jesus calls them to refocus and reestablish him as the core of their existence. The same call resonates today, urging to prioritize our spiritual commitments. This message aims to enlighten us on the importance of responding with urgency to the divine call and redirecting our lives towards Jesus. After today's episode, we'll share with you a daily devotion to follow this week. Here's Senior Pastor Brian Jones. Well, good morning, church. Hope you are well. Uh, One of my favorite things uh, about uh, working in church world is that I love seeing people wake up to God. It's the thing that just excites me the most. Uh, And just seeing people take these small steps, whether it's in worship, whether it's uh, being distant from God and then waking up to him. And one of the things I was thinking about as we speak about this church today, we're in this series, uh, Jesus is the Center of the Church. Today we're looking at a church called Sardis. And really what you're gonna find is they are given the gift of the wake-up call, a sense of urgency to put Jesus at the center of their lives and the center of the church. And one of my favorite things is getting to see people wake up to God. Like I was thinking about just even some people in this room right now who uh, one person I was, I was talking to just recently and for probably 20 years of his life, he was an alcoholic and really thought that God could never use him and he would drink his problems and his pain away. And then one day he hit rock bottom. And sometimes, you know, the truth is before you can see Jesus as the rock, sometimes you got to hit rock bottom, amen? And it's like this guy got to this point where he thought this was it and then God got a hold of him, gave him the gift of the wake up call. And he serves and God is using his life. He's in our church and it's just, he talks about that sense of urgency that God placed in his life. Think about someone else who talked about a season of pain they walked through several years ago, worst season of their life. And they they talked about that season where they walked through a divorce was the season that God awakened them in new new and fresh ways. And, And they'll tell you that they'll say, this was the worst season of my life, but yet God awakened me in ways I never had experienced before. And he's leading, he's faithful, God's using his life in mighty ways. Thinking about a friend of mine who um, was, was very well off in business and for a while he was following Jesus, but then he got successful and he got sidetracked. And all of a sudden he just wasn't being the man God had called him to be in his marriage. And with his kids and his wife just pulled him aside one day and she said, if you don't step back into being the man, I married the man God has called you to be, I'm out. And he just said, he responded, yes, ma'am. And it was like, that was transformative to him. The gift of the wake-up call is where all of a sudden you come in thinking it's an ordinary day and then God does something extraordinary in your life. I'll never forget, I was preaching one time. In the very front row, there was someone who was just completely asleep, like passed out. And they weren't trying to do that thing I've seen some of you do where you act like you're praying in the spirit. You know, you just sort of bow like this. I mean, they were like stretched out, rim three sleep. I think they had a little drool coming down. They came up to me after the sermon and no joke, this is what they said. They said, that was an amazing sermon. I said, bro, you were uh, passed out in the front row. You know what he says? He says, I was. And I probably only heard five minutes of your sermon. And he said, but God woke me up. I don't know why God woke me up. And when he woke me up, what I was going through was exactly what you were sharing. And he's just talking about the gift of the wake-up call, pun intended in this case, 
But you know what it's like? Have you been in that space where it's like you show up on a Sunday, you read the Bible, you're meeting with someone, you have this bad circumstance that's in your life, you're not looking for God, you're not expecting God, you're not interested in God necessarily, and then all of a sudden, you have the gift of the wake-up call, a sense of urgency that awakens you to God. Now, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this. You know I love you guys. I'm hesitant to say this because I've mentioned that those of you who are Clemson fans and uh, Gamecock fans, you're a bit creepy with your love for your teams, all right? <laughs> Bordering on a little bit cultish even, all right? And so I didn't, I didn't think I was gonna play off of it, but for the sake of this, I, I read an article, and many of you are painfully aware of this, but I read an article that the first week in South Carolina was not a good week for football, was it? And they said something like 10 out of 15 teams got dominated, got demolished. And, and I was thinking about this because, you know, I wondered what the, the midweek interactions look like. Like when the coaches were reviewing the film, when they're sitting down with players. You know, I bet you, 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 I bet you, you didn't hear things like, hey, I just want you guys to know we lost, but A plus for effort. <laughs> and probably what you didn't hear is, you know what? Um, God loves you and has, has a wonderful plan for your life, even though you lost. You probably didn't hear things like, you know what, it's just a game. Don't beat yourself up. I bet you they had a come to Jesus kind of meeting, and it probably wasn't a PG come to Jesus kind of meeting, if you catch it. It was probably a wake-up call, a sense of urgency, and you noticed even the different intensities that people played as a gift of the wake-up call. And so all throughout life, we have these wake-up calls, and it could be in our marriage, it could be in our careers, it could be with our relationship with Jesus. And the church we're going to be looking at was just sort of cruising along. And all of a sudden, they show up to church, if you will, on Monday or Sunday. Because what happened was, remember, John was the one who wrote these letters. Jesus gave him these words of the church. And so what would happen is these angels or pastors would stand in front of the church and they would read what Jesus was going to commend, what he was going to encourage, and then what he was going to correct. And so you imagine this church in Sardis shows up on a Sunday like this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus begins to share with them what's going on, and they're given the gift of the wake-up call, a sense of urgency to place Jesus at the center of the church and the center of their lives. And this is what Jesus says to this church, starting in verse one. Write this to the angel. Now, the angel, again, is messenger. It's a pastor here. To the church of Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, the stars is the church uh, sevenfold spirit can seem really confusing. Um, think about it like this. Seven, the number in the Bible, is the word for, or the number for complete or whole. So it's in essence Jesus going, I am completely God. I am holy God. If you're taking notes, also jot this verse down. Um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, some people think that the sevenfold spirit is referencing Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, which gives seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit. So if you're wondering the role of the Holy Spirit, I'd encourage you to check out Isaiah chapter 11, verse two. But this is what's going on. Nonetheless, Jesus is saying that he's the center of this church and he's calling them to wake up. Now, let me just give you a little bit of uh, background on the city of Sardis. You'll see a picture right here. Sardis was one of the unique cities of its day because it actually had two levels. So it's probably the most unique of all the cities. A lot of the other cities we showed you were port cities, but they had a lower level of Sardis, which you really can't see down there. But then they had an upper level of Sardis. And Sardis, people thought, was actually unconquerable. 
It was considered a military gym because they were on elevated space and no one thought they could be conquered at all. Uh, One of the things that Sardis was really known for was his wealth. In fact, behind you'll see a little picture of some coins. Uh, Sardis was the first to actually mint coins. They were like the biblical Bitcoin of its day, all right? And so they have this coin and that actually leads them to easy money. And so kind of the combination of easy money and loose morals actually leads this church to just be spiritually lazy, just to be apathetic, just to be overconfident in their position. And Jesus is going to speak to this church that honestly thinks they're doing great. It would have been a bit shocking when Jesus is reading this letter to the church of Sardis because they thought everything was going great. One of the things that was unique about that city, if you go back to that picture uh, one more time, one of the things that's unique about this city is, again, I mentioned people thought it was unconquerable. But what's interesting is that the city of Sardis was actually conquered not once but twice. And what happened was there was a story where a scout was trying to find a way to get to the city. And what he noticed was there was a soldier of Sardis who dropped his helmet. And then he went through this secret path. He grabbed his helmet and then he went back up. The scout saw this, told this to his general. And that night, that general sent a raiding party up. And the story goes that once they made it to Sardis, there was this little hole in the wall. And commentators and scholars say the hole was so small, a young child could defend it. But they found all the soldiers in Sardis were asleep. And so the army got in and conquered the city of Sardis. Jesus is playing off that imagery of people who are asleep, overconfident in their position, prideful, thinking they're great. And yet in the midst of that pride, the enemy comes and takes them out. What's sobering is this happened not once, but twice. They became so overconfident that they actually got attacked and conquered. Now, interesting. In every letter Jesus writes, he's going to do two things. He's going to commend what's going really well, and then he's going to correct what needs to change. This is the only church in all of the letters of Revelation where Jesus really isn't going to commend anything. He's he's not going to really have anything positive to say. In fact, the closest you get to a positive statement Jesus is going to make is in verses 4 and 5 where it says this. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. You ever given a presentation? You ever ever created something and then you ask someone for feedback and then this is what they say? It's not that bad. And you're going, that's not encouraging at all. I was playing golf with somebody who's really good. He's a golf coach and I have a terrible slice. And I said, tell me what you think. And he just looks at me and goes, I've seen worse. Like that is not encouraging or helpful at all. It's almost like this is what Jesus is doing. Some of you haven't completely soiled your clothes. It's not all that encouraging. But yet what he's trying to do is he's trying to be honest that the people have become overconfident, complacent. And they got to wake up to the reality they're facing. Notice that it says those who are victorious will be dressed in white. This is playing off the imagery of that day. In Roman culture, when the Roman army won a battle, they would dress in white for this triumphal entry. And it was their way of saying they're victorious. So Jesus says, whoever keeps me at the center of the church, whoever wakes up to me and keeps me at the center of their lives, 
I will make them victorious. They will be faithful. Now, one of the things that's deeply encouraging to me is notice how he motivates them. Those who are victorious, they will what? They will walk with me. They will walk with me. You know, one of the ways that unintentionally, for years, I probably motivated people this way, but one of the ways that people will try to motivate people to change sometimes, have you ever noticed this? Is we try to motivate people to change with the negative. We try to motivate people to change with punishment or consequences or or shame unintentionally. For years as a pastor, I, I didn't actually really grow up following Jesus for the early parts of my life. And in that time, I developed certain habits that when I became a Christian, I just thought they went away. But one of those was pornography. And I remember having all this passion for Jesus, but somehow these desires never went away. And I remember meeting with people. I was very open and transparent with certain men in the church who would, who would disciple me. But one of the ways that they would try to motivate me is they would say things like, if you don't get this area right, you're gonna lose your marriage. If you don't get this area right, then you're gonna lose your future. If you don't get this area right, it's gonna cost you your job. And the problem is, is you know this, if you're in the church and you're carrying something, when we motivate with negative, it doesn't cause you to change, it causes you to hide. Jesus is not interested in people coming and hiding. What he's interested is in transforming people. And so the way that Jesus is going to motivate the church to keep him at the center is by this idea of walking with him, of being connected with him. You know, one of the things that shifted in my life is all of a sudden I stopped thinking about all the negative things that happen when I sin, and I just started thinking about the positive things that happen when I walk with the Spirit. One of the things that that God put on my heart was this simple phrase that that your power really comes from your purity. Because a lot of people today, when you talk about purity, it's not real motivating to say, be pure. I mean, especially in culture and society, if you're honest, especially with, with teenage boys or even for people in this room, purity isn't always that fun. And I'm not just talking about sexual purity. I'm talking about the purity of your words. When someone cuts you off in traffic, it's fun to yell at them. And yet, oftentimes in the church, people would try to motivate me with these changes that didn't really work. And then all of a sudden, it's like, God, just put this on my heart. Your purity comes from your power. And I started going, God, I don't want to just do these things because I'm supposed to. I want to do these things because I want to see you. I want to get to the place where I actually believe the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives and resides inside of me. I don't want to believe that one day when I get to heaven, I can experience this eternal life and joy. I want to believe it happens now. The pure in heart see God. And I just started going, God, I want to see you. And so can I just encourage you, if you're in this place where you're just carrying some shame or you're trying to hide, can I just tell you that ultimately what God is interested in is transformation. And the way that you transform is not by negative rewards, but it's by the invitation of the spirit to deeper life. It is. It's interesting. There's a study that is one of the most popular studies um, in schoolwork, but it's a study by Harvard. It's interesting. What they did is they took uh, kindergarten through fifth grade kids. They tested to see who is a special child who is uniquely gifted. And then what they did was they rigged the results. And they told the teachers, they gave all these kids, all these teachers, four or five, what they called gifted teachers. The problem is that they weren't necessarily the gifted ones. They just chose them at random. But the teachers believed they were the gifted ones. You know what happened in this study? Every one of those kids' IQ bumped up 15 to 27 points. The only thing that shifted was the attitude of the teacher. And here's this phrase that stuck out to me. In this study, it said, when the teachers believed in the kids, the kids believed in themselves. 
Can I just say, if you're like me, sometimes if you carry something, you might be in a great spot, but you're a spot where you're just in a rut. Can I just say, even if you don't believe, I believe that the Spirit of God can transform your life in ways you never imagined. Even if you don't believe that, because the reason I believe that is my confidence is in myself or your skills. It's in the spirit of living God. And Jesus is going, I want you to know, this is what motivates you to keep me at the center is that there's real transformation. You can walk with me. Every one of you can know me. Now, the other thing that Jesus says, and I love this, is that he says this phrase in verse two. He says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Isn't that a great verse? I have found your deeds unfinished, meaning that if you are not dead, you are not done. God has more for you than you could ever imagine. Then he goes on into verse five. He who's victorious will like them be dressed in white. I've mentioned that. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Now in the book of life, they had something in that culture called literally the, the living book of life. And the only way your name was taken out of this, think of it like a census. It was just their way of keeping track record of who was around. The only way your name was blotted out of this ancient book was if you were a criminal or you died. Five times this idea of our names being blotted out is mentioned in the Bible. Now, it's important that God's not trying to motivate us with shame. Remember, he's speaking to the church in Sardis. He's speaking to a church that has become so complacent, so prideful, that they're really asleep and dead to the things of God. So his invitation is just saying, some of you are really confident and you need to wake up to me. Some of you have lost this sense of urgency. Like the city of Sardis, you're just overconfident in your position. And some of you just need to wake up and ask yourself the tough questions. Has the spirit of God really transformed my life? Has God got every part of me? Is he the center of my life or is he a part of this? And this is the invitation that Jesus gives. And really what he's gonna do is correct this church. He's gonna correct this church. And this is what he says about correction in verses one through three. Let me go back to that. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Notice that they were once in a great space or Jesus wouldn't have told them to hold to it. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. And so if you really want to sum up what Jesus' confrontation of the church in Sardis, it's going to be this, it's a lack of urgency. It's a lack of urgency. N notice twice he says, wake up, wake up, strengthen what is about to die. Strengthen what is about to die. And it's interesting that if you notice this, this church, it's not like moral, wicked, evil deeds are taking them out. It's just a slow drift. It's just slow fade. It's just a church being overconfident and thinking everything's great and somewhere not having an urgency to follow him every day of their life. Think about the city of Sardis, how it was overtaken. It was not overtaken by military might or power or strength. It was overtaken by complacency. It was overtaken by confidence and a pride that was falsely placed. And so Jesus is telling this church not to be afraid, but he's telling us when we get to this place where we don't have a sense of urgency, where we don't wake up, we're at risk of being taken out by the enemy. 
we're at risk of having the enemy come in and creep up and destroy what God wants to do in our life. You know, it's interesting. Did you know this? There are three really metaphors of the Christian life in the Bible. Ever think about this? So when, when Jesus is trying to get us to understand the Christian life, there are three metaphors that are given. One is the metaphor of a race, where seconds matter. The other is the picture of a battle, where it's life or death. And the other was a picture of a farmer who is tilling up the ground because the future of the entire city or the town or his family depends on that crop, on that produce. You ever think about what these have in common? If you talk to someone in a battle, someone in a race, or someone whose future depends on that crop, there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of, of being awake to these things. Now, one of the things, I don't know if you sense this, but I've just, one of the things I've loved about our church is I've been meeting with several staff members and I've been meeting with, with several congregants. And one of the things I hear over and over again is people just saying, I feel like God's up to something in our church. I just feel like there's a spirit sensitivity where God's awakening things. You guys feel that? You feel that in the back seats back there? You're not making me feel confident back there. At least give me a thumbs up. Come on, there you go. But, you know, I was just thinking about the fact that God has an incredible call on Brookwood. He has an incredible call in your life. But whatever the call is that you and I think he has for Brookwood or for your life, can I humbly submit, it's probably not too big. It's probably too small for a big God. And what keeps us in this place where we see the Spirit of God moving, where he continues to pour out new life, is simply a group of people in a church who have an urgency who have awakened to this desire that with every fiber of their being, they will put Jesus at the center of their lives. Because when you become complacent, that is where the enemy comes in. When you just become overconfident, go, you know what, I've grown up in the church and I've done this and you know, Jesus loves me and it's true, but it's in that complacency where the enemy comes and he gets your eyes off Jesus. Remember, Peter sinks when he gets his eyes off Jesus. He's walking on water. He's experiencing great things. But when he gets his eyes on the problem, when he gets his eyes on the circumstances, that's when he begins to sink. And the same thing happens spiritually speaking. When you and I get our eyes off of Jesus because of good things or bad things, then we begin to sink. I just want you to jot this phrase down. It's actually in your program. But just because you're surrounded by something does not mean you are necessarily transformed by it. Just because you're surrounded by something does not necessarily mean you're transformed by it. Now, my wife and I spent 11 years in Chicago. And one of the things that, that we'll tell you, and if you've been to Chicago, the Midwest, California, you know how culturally different it is. I mean, one of the things is, you know, even just the food is different. Do you know in Chicago, they didn't have sweet tea? Any place that does not have sweet tea cannot have the full anointing of God. I'm just saying that. But one of the things that is so unique is the cultures are different. If you've visited or if you've been there, you know this. And it's like one of the ways I knew I was in the South is I walked into a Starbucks and I saw four people doing a Beth Moore Bible study. And I'm like, all right, I'm in the South. I never saw that in Chicago. And the truth is that in the South, you're probably surrounded with more of an openness or receptiveness to Jesus and the church. There's sort of this like almost moral proximity to religion and faith in Jesus way more than it is in the Midwest. 
And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I think there's something great because you can invite people to church. There's less resistance in some cases. We can be a part of a church where we're strengthened. But I also wanna make this point that just because you're surrounded by something in culture does not mean you're necessarily transformed by it. The Pharisees had closer proximity to Jesus than anybody else, but they were not transformed by him. And just to make sure you, you kind of get this, let me just make sure this is illustrated. You know, let's, let me just say this. I hang out with people who eat great. I mean, they will only touch green things. They will not eat a carb. Their bodies have washboard abs. They are just fit. They do all this thing. But imagine I'm sitting down with my doctor. I do a physical and he comes back to me and he says, Brian, what's been going on? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, your blood sugar is very high. Your cholesterol's up. You've gained a little bit of weight. What's going on? And I go, doc, how can this be? This doesn't make any sense. I am surrounded daily by people who don't touch carbs. Doc, you got to go back and run the numbers. I've got people who do sit-ups while they watch TV and Netflix. And I'm surrounded by them. Imagine the doctor just going, well, do you do that? I go, doc, you don't understand. I'm surrounded. Because the point is you can be surrounded by something and not transformed by it. You are surrounded by the life and the activity of the Spirit of God in this church. Just a little while ago, there were people who were really doing business with God when they were responding and singing. They were being transformed by the Spirit of God. There are people that even as I speak, they're not listening to some pastor speak. The Word of God is coming in, and it's beginning to transform and get a hold of their life. You know, I love that idea of when you read the Bible, sometimes I often say that when you read the Bible, the Bible is actually reading you because there's a part where God's getting a hold of you and he's transforming you. And so there are people right beside you who even now the Holy Spirit is coming in and he's transforming them. And you've got to be careful to make sure that just because you're surrounded by that, you don't think you've been transformed by that. You know, my question for you this morning is not that you love Jesus. My question is, has the Spirit of God transformed you? Do people around you go, I don't know what's up with this person? Do they go, hey, Sarah's just different. You know, Jared's just kind of got this different mentality. Steve, what's going on with Steve? You know, do people look at you and just go, you're not perfect, but there's like a different operating system because what happens is when the Spirit of God gets a hold of you, he wakes you up to the things of God and suddenly following God isn't dull or it's not obligation. It becomes delight. It becomes opportunity. The Spirit gets a hold of you in a way where you are fundamentally different. You have a new reality, a new outlook on life. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. And Jesus is going, some of us, some of us, some of us gotta wake up because the church was surrounded by God, but only a handful in Sardis had been transformed by the Spirit. And Jesus is going, you just got to wake up to that reality because Sardis had peace, but it was the peace of the dead. Complacency, no fight, no struggle, no power, no faith. One of the things that you've got to ask yourself is that if you have no resistance in your life, maybe it's because the enemy sees nothing to resist. And so the invitation is to wake up, wake up, wake up. It's not shame. It's not punishment. It's the invitation that you have one life on this thing called planet Earth. And everything you live for besides Jesus 
brings an emptiness and a void. That's why you need more of that same substance after a while to get you that same high that you once had because nothing on planet Earth is designed to satisfy you like the name of Jesus is. And that's why Jesus is going, wake up, wake up, wake up. And so this is the invitation that we have. But you ever ask yourself, how does this church who was once on fire for God start to drift away? And this might be one of the most important points I can make. This is the third point I want to say is this. I believe the greatest threat to our spirituality probably isn't a moral failure, but it's spiritual drowsiness. Again, I believe the greatest threat to our spirituality, to mine, to yours, probably isn't moral failure. It's spiritual drowsiness. It's the slow fade. It's the slow burn. It's just where over time you drift in complacency towards this. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's just the gradual drift. Perhaps the greatest threat to our faith is the constant focus on the future home, the new job, the new car that just distracts us. Perhaps the greatest threat is the boredom that's cured by shopping. Perhaps the greatest threat is the constant obsession with that hobby that keeps us blind to everything else. Maybe the greatest threat is another tailgate or another kids event or another activity that keeps us moving at a Mach 3 pace where we don't slow down enough just to understand and receive the invitation of God. And so I think the greatest threat to our spirituality is probably just a spiritual drowsiness because the natural pull of this world is a powerful sedative that lulls us to sleep to the invitation of God because the comfort of modern life allows us to believe in God without really ever needing him. So let me just encourage you this. Maybe the greatest threat, maybe the greatest threat to your faith and mine is this one word that we often say in church, one day, one day. Do you know that I have been telling my wife one day for a month, I'm gonna change the light bulb downstairs, one day. And I suspect if you're anything like me, there are things you've been telling God longer than a month. One day. One day when the kids and the activities slow down, I'm gonna take you really seriously. One day when, when I get over this struggle or this addiction, I'm gonna just kind of take a step towards you. One day when the finances get in a better place, I'm gonna be faithful to give. One day when, when the circumstances change in my life, I promise I'm gonna be more invested in the church. I'm gonna make it a priority. And if you're anything like me, I spent a large portion of my life just saying one day, one day, one day. You know what Joshua says? He's speaking to a group of people, the Israelites, who are just saying, in essence, the same thing. They don't want to wake up. They love the reality of God, but it costs something to follow God. And so, in essence, this group of people, the Israelites, are going, hey, one day, one day we're going to take this thing seriously. One day we're going to put the word of God and make it primary in our life. Listen to what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 14 through 15. So the fear of the Lord, so the fear of the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols of your ancestors. When they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today. Choose today whom you'll serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or will be the gods of the Amorites and the land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord, not one day, now. 
So where might God be calling you just to wake up in his kindness? It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's not punishment. It's not shame. It's the invitation of God. I just want to, I want to just say this, you know, this week is, as I was, I didn't even really think about it as I was preparing for this sermon. I had a dream on Tuesday that God just sort of put it in my mind. And one of the things that I, I was dreaming about was there was this couple who was basically in this place where they were, they were separated. And in this dream, the man really wanted to get back together. The woman wasn't that interested. And I was just shocked in this dream that literally the man kept pursuing a woman who wasn't that interested. Kept reaching out, kept trying to be faithful. And in this dream, I get to the point where they're about to meet up and I'm about to find out if this couple get back together. And about that moment, my sweet four-year-old daughter taps me on the shoulder and I wake up. And I'm like, no, no. I tried to go back to bed because I wanted to know what happened to this couple. Couldn't go back to bed. And then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there and I'm just thinking about this dream and I'm thinking it's probably just some TV show I watched or something. And God just said this as clear as day. He just sort of whispered it to me. And when I say he whispered, he didn't do it audibly. It was just this thought came in my mind. It was a simple thought. And he said, the church is my bride. I'm jealous for her return. What? I hadn't even put together what I was preaching on. God just said again, the church is my bride. I'm jealous for her return. Can I just ask you this question? Do you know, not on the macro level, especially if you've grown up in the church of your life, do you really know this morning how loved you are by God? In this dream, I was amazed by this person who was determined and faithful. But can I just say that faithfulness and determination does not compare to the depths of God's love for you. John 15 speaks about three examples of God's love that he goes after, a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. I'm not asking, do you understand generally God's love? I'm asking, do you understand in this room how loved you are by God? Because if you understand that love of God, suddenly you don't spend your life trying to earn in culture what you already have in Jesus. And do you really realize how forgiven you are? Why is it if you're like me, whenever you sin or you make a mistake, one of the last places you want to be is the church? Perhaps it's somewhere we don't understand the depths of God's forgiveness and his goodness. And in John 15, there is just a radical story of this lost son who wastes his father's money, his whole future. And the story goes that this father has positioned himself just to welcome back his son. And in that culture, a father does not run. A father's dignified, he's sophisticated, he's strong. So they walk. But yet in this particular story in John 15, this father has to pull up his robe and he sprints to his boy. That's the picture of you and I. That whenever God's children come home, he will always, always, always welcome us. Not with shame, not with punishment but he will crown you as a son or daughter of God. This is a love like the world has never seen, never known. And the closer you think you are to this love, probably the further you are because angels, the Bible says, can't even comprehend this kind of love. So do you know how loved you are and how forgiven you are? And then my question is this, are you available to that love today? Are you available? Maybe God's going, you need to return to me. And he's not asking, do you love me? He's just saying, is there something in your life that has not been surrendered and transformed by me? At the end of the service, I was talking to one guy. He said, I'll be honest with you. I didn't want to come today. First part of your sermon, I was kind of tuning out. 
But this morning, God just put it on my heart that my faith is beginning to shrink. And then all of a sudden, when we ended, I saw that word return. He said, I'm in. I'm waking up today. What might the Holy Spirit be calling you to wake up? Maybe you're in this room and you are just consumed with popularity, people pleasing, and the Holy Spirit's going, it's time to wake up, bring me back to the center. Maybe you're in business and you're just so focused on success and that next thing that the Holy Spirit is going, that's not worth your life, wake up, return to me. Maybe you're a mom and you're so focused on your kids being successful and healthy and the Holy Spirit's going, that's not my primary focus. I want you to be a light in your family. I want you to wake your family up to Jesus. Maybe you're in this place and you believe the lie that you're supposed to struggle with this addiction or this shame or this past till Jesus comes back and the Holy Spirit's going, that's not true. I've set people free. I can set you free today. Wake up. Maybe you're in a great spot, but the Holy Spirit's going, there is so much more. Don't get complacent. Wake up to me. Whatever he's doing, can I just encourage you? I believe God is in the business of setting people free. So here's what I wanna do as we close. I'm gonna ask if our prayer counselors would come up front right now. I'm gonna ask if they'd come up front right now. We also have a care connection center out there. But I wanna encourage you, if, if God has placed something on your heart, if he's calling you to wake up, you can sit in your chair before you leave. But can I encourage you, don't say one day. God's put anything on your heart before you leave. Do business with him. We have a group of people that love to pray for people. They come prayed up on Sunday morning. If we can be an aid to you, there's also a Care Connection Center. But can I just encourage you? I sense the Spirit is wanting to transform people and set you free. He's wanting to strengthen you. So be obedient to whatever that is. Let me just pray. God, we love you. We pray that we would return to you today, whatever that looks like. We thank you that it's the kindness of God, the kindness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So God, wherever you might be prompting for us to return, whatever you might be strengthening, whatever dream you might be giving, we just wanna be obedient to that. So God, we love you. It's in your great and wonderful name we pray. Amen. Here's this week's memory verse, Revelation 3, verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. The series, Jesus at the Center of the Church, includes a daily devotional. This tool aids in the dedication of time every day to engage with God. This engagement can be through reading, reflecting, and praying, all centered around the content found in the daily devotional. If you do not have a daily devotional book, there are several ways to get one, either during the Sunday services, the reception desk all week, and a digital format on the new Brookwood Church app. The mobile app for Brookwood Church has recently been enhanced. You can download the updated version before next Sunday. This will ensure that you have access to the most recent resources for the services. On Sunday, September 17th, we continue our series, Jesus at the Center of the Church. Prepare by reading Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. 
We are grateful you joined us for the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Please leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you during our next episode.